From WXXI News, this is Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Unleashed offers you the opportunity to ask questions about your pet's health, what's going on in your pet's life, and our guest for this month is Dr. Stephen Smith of Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital. He's in studio with us today. This is the time for you to call and ask your questions right now. It's 844-295-TALK, 844-295-8255, or 263-WXXI, 263-9994 if you're in Rochester. You can tweet your question to the hashtag Unleashed, or to our producer on Twitter, Megan Mack there, and she's on Twitter at mmacmedia. And so this is the time to get those questions in, and I want to welcome Dr. Steve Smith of Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital. Nice to see you. Steve, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I was just asking you what's keeping you busy this time of year. You said allergies, and we think about what's keeping adult human beings busy with allergies, with, uh, with sort of the changing of the season and, and spring, but for animals as well? Absolutely. We see a lot of allergy uh, flare-ups starting in the early spring. Um, spring and falls t- uh, tend to be the biggest seasons that we see with all the grasses and pollens and weeds starting to come into bloom. I mean, how do you know? <laughs> I mean, how do you test for it? That's a great question. Most commonly, people come in with the complaint of their pet is itching like crazy, or they will have uh, some you know, redness around the eyes sometimes, very similar to people, really. Um, but skin problems are the biggest. We see ear issues as well, ear infections, and, and uh, a lot of licking of the feet and those type of problems uh, are an indication uh, that your your critter is definitely a little bit itchy, and, and there's a good thing to talk to your vet about. There was a dog in our family who used to rub his nose on the ground, uh, you know, kind of all over the grass and look like he was itching. You couldn't really tell, couldn't really ask him. Is that a sign of allergy? Absolutely, yep. Um, yeah, we had a dog as a kid growing up that would crawl on our uh, kind of army crawl across the pavement. <laughs> we, we used to think that was a, really funny, but definitely a sign of uh, that she was itching pretty good. I just didn't know it at the time. And so what are common treatments? And kind of walk me through the process if you think your pet has an allergy. First of all, get it in to, to the vet to get a check. Absolutely. Yeah, so if you uh, if you do feel like your, your pet is itchy, there's a variety of reasons. Uh, fleas, as everybody knows, is a really common one. But allergies is a second uh, very common thing. And so we do... Uh, some investigation where on the animal uh, they seem to be the most itchy. If there's any kind of uh, problems with skin infections, ear infections, we try to get to the bottom of that fairly quickly. Uh, what type of infection, whether it's bacterial or yeast infections and such. Um, and then you have to treat those infections appropriately. Um, and then beyond that, there are a lot of different medications now, uh, which is very, very good for pets. Uh, we have great flea and, and uh, tick prevention as well as we start using antihistamines and sometimes steroids, but there's some uh, really newer generation allergy treatments that are absolutely uh, transforming the lives of of chronic allergy patients. All right, so forgive me here, but do you have uh, clients who have a cat or a dog and they're taking the equivalent of a Benadryl every day like we do? Absolutely. We, we actually use Benadryl. Um, the dosage for pets is, is quite a bit higher um, than for people, so it's important to talk to your veterinarian about what would be appropriate doses. Is that an appropriate medication? There are certain animals that we don't want to use them, but they're in general quite safe. Um, and they work for milder allergies and can sometimes keep them pretty comfortable with mild issues. Um, as things get worse, again, it's important that we make sure there's not bigger problems like infections and such. Okay. And if they're taking like a Benadryl, are they taking it in 
pill form? Are, they, are you grinding it up and putting it on food? I mean, right now we've got a cat who has blood pressure issues, and every night she, we give her a quarter pill ground up right on top of the food. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of different tricks. They, they make things like pill pockets, um, which are just you know little chewy treats with holes in it. You can put the put the, uh, Benadryl in. Um, you can give liquid form. Um, so, you know, piece, a small piece of lunch meat, those kind of things. Uh, everybody uses different tricks to get them in. Okay. Now, you also mentioned fleas. And I'm sure you've had plenty of clients ask you what works when it comes to fleas. Where do you start? There's a lot of different things you can do. What do you think works? I think the uh, old adage, you get what you pay for, is very true in terms of flea protection um, and tick protection. Uh, ticks have become as big of a problem um, as fleas. So a good flea and tick combination uh, product is, is a, a good thing to be talking with your vet about. There's uh, three major uh, avenues that we can go. There's topicals, like everybody kind of traditionally thinks the drops behind the neck or shoulder blades um, that last for about a month. Um, but there's now uh, good oral products if you don't like topicals on your pet. Um, and lastly, there's actually some good flea and tick collars. Um, I've never been a big flea and tick collar guy, um, but there are some good flea and tick collars now that have extended release that last up to six plus months. How come you didn't like them in the past? Uh, they use uh, older chemicals. There's kind of that powdery residue on them that I was never crazy about, kind of smell bad. And, and I, you see a lot of failures. So they may decrease the number of fleas or push them away from the head. But there's oftentimes a big flea problem at the back end of the pet where it's typically you see issues. And I was never crazy thinking about my kids uh, that are always hanging all over my dogs with, with those type of products. What typically can a pet owner do to prevent a pet from even getting fleas? I, mean, I guess if you have an outdoor animal, even more difficult? It is difficult. I mean, I, again, I think flea and tick prevention is really uh, an important part of our parasite protection for our pets these days. Um, see, a lot of folks, you know, come in and sometimes uh, have concern about using different products. And, and I, I don't take that lightly. I do understand that. Um, but I also am quick to, to remind them that fleas um, and ticks carry disease. Um, they can establish pretty significant infestations in your house uh, very quickly that are very, very challenging to get rid of. So I think protection and, and prevention is always the best, as most things in medicine. I'm probably like some parents who've gone through um, having, having a child w with a tick on them, and it was my wife who swung into incredibly quick action to dig that thing out very, very quickly. It was in a public setting. It was in the grocery store. I think everybody looked around and wondered what was going on, but I think people quickly realized, I mean, that's pretty serious. Absolutely. When it, when it comes to your animal, and you mentioned ticks are a problem on an animal. How quickly can you recognize, and if you feel like you haven't recognized quickly enough, you know, kind of take me through that process. Yeah, well, it's one of the challenges when we're covered, you know, nose to tail in, in fur. And, and ticks are pretty small, as you know, especially that uh, the little nymphs and, and the babies that are just getting on board and, and uh, then start to feed, they get bigger. Um, however, they can be um, intact or you know attached to the pet for sometimes days before they they're even recognized. So it's important to you know after you're coming, especially back from hikes in the woods, those out in the fields, those kind of things, to you know really do a good job at running your hands over your pets, uh, particularly around the head, around the ears. Um, those are common spots for ticks. 
because that's where the pets, you know, reaching down through the foliage, sniffing and such, and, and ticks can attach. Um, but we're seeing a lot of Lyme disease. Uh, we have a unique perspective because we heartworm and tick test most of our adult dogs every year. We recommend that. And we're seeing lots and lots of tick-borne disease coming up. All right. So when you're doing that, that check uh, around, especially around the, the head, neck, ears, you find, if you find one, I'm I'm thinking about you know digging it out, but I mean r- really, what's what's next? What what, what are the steps? Well, yeah, you you search, certainly want to remove the tick. Um, we actually have this unique little tool now. I think it's just called a tick puller or something. We actually sell it in our clinic, um, and a lot of vet clinics have it. You may find it over the counter these days, but it's a very simple little tool. But it works amazingly well. Uh, it's a little plastic thing that looks like kind of a, like a claw hammer, and you just put the little claw underneath the tick and twist it, and it pulls right out. So it's very very simple to take it out. Even if you can get it out quickly, though, then get it in for a check to, to see if there's been, I mean, again, I'm so ignorant about this, but you mentioned Lyme disease. People yep. get very, very nervous about that, understandably so. For sure. So even if you can dig one out, take it in, get a check? Yeah. In general, you're going to really need to uh, test for Lyme about four to six weeks after. Okay. Um, so it's not something you're going to immediately be able to tell that they've been exposed Um, Many, many dogs are exposed, but don't become ill, thankfully. But we definitely see dogs that can have some joint problems or just general uh, malaise and not doing well, sometimes more serious things like kidney issues and such. So it is important to screen them and understand um, if they have a problem, um, we need to find it early on while we can still treat it. Um, but again, it goes back to good flea and tick prevention is, is really important. And it's, it's good to be thinking about uh, vaccination as well for certain pets with certain lifestyles that are going to put them at risk quite often. So four to six weeks are when you'd need to text, test for it. But again, the most likely symptoms you would start to see are how quickly? Um, you it, it, you could see uh, symptoms earlier than that for sure. And if you're seeing uh, any, especially swollen joints are probably one of the more common things. And these guys are really, really painful. So a lot of times folks think that they, you know, fell, fell and hurt themselves or, or whatnot. But these dogs can be three-legged lame where um, they're just very, very painful and swollen joints. My guest is Dr. Steve Smith of Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital on this edition of Unleash the Pet Show. You can call in with your questions if you've got questions about your pets and their health or related issues, it's 844-295-TALK, 844-295-8255, or 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester, 263-9994. And we'll be taking some of your questions that come in in various forms of media throughout the hour here, because uh, we've got some uh, a chance to do that via Twitter and email as well here. Dr. Smith mentioned that this time of year, you're starting to see more allergies, more pets outside. Obviously, the weather is changing. Are you seeing animals come in? Is this the time of year where you will have animals come in because they ate something they shouldn't? They were outside more. Is, does that change this time of year for you? For sure. Yeah, we call that dietary indiscretion. That's our 50-cent word for garbage gut. You know, they <laughs> the, the snow melts off, and our dogs are finding all kinds of fun things under uh, underneath what the snow had. Um, so that's something that causes a lot of GI distress. You see vomiting and diarrhea very commonly. GI bugs, just like people, viruses also kind of go through. And I, I do think big swings in weather, as we see uh, in upstate New York and in the uh, early spring, um, the bigs ups and downs, they definitely causes a lot of stress. And um, what they call stress and what we call stress is different. And, and the, the, their stress oftentimes ends up causing some vomiting and diarrhea issues. What's the strangest thing you've had someone bring a dog in for that they ingested? The strangest thing that they've ingested. 
Um, boy, I've seen a lot of things ingested, and um, I, I think the the strangest quantity of things was uh, one of my colleagues removed, uh, I think, twenty one golf balls uh, from Whoa. from the stomach and intestines of a dog. Twenty one, and the dog was okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, I did great after surgery. And... <laughs> All right, Dan and Brighton, go ahead, Dan. Hello. Go ahead, Dan. Can a wild deer contract or give somebody bovine tuberculosis? Can we give it to um, farmers, herds? Can wild deer give someone bovine tuberculosis? Is that the question? Have bovine tuberculosis. Do wild deer have bovine tuberculosis? Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, Deer can be carriers of tuberculosis. I actually... I uh, used to work in northern Michigan, and Michigan uh, was, we, while I was there, we tested 26,000 head of cattle uh, for tuber- tuberculosis, and one of the big concerns there was uh, was the wild deer population was very, very heavy, and uh, that's how it certainly can be spread. So, yes, that's that's absolutely true. Thank you very much. Thank you, You're Dan. Uh, good luck to you. Bovine tuberculosis, bovine refers to cow? Cattle, cows, yeah. yeah. But, but deer can carry it. For sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that. I see the phone ringing. We'll get back to the phones uh, in just a second and remind you that uh, you can call the program 844-295-TALK. You want to tweet a question, you can do that using the hashtag Unleashed or to our producer, Megan Mack, who is on Twitter right now, at Media. And Dr. Steve Smith of Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital is in studio with us today. Are you guys online, by the way, Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital? We are, CanandaiguaVet.com. CanandaiguaVet.com. Let's go to Pittsburgh. Donna. It doesn't say Plattsburgh or Prattsburgh, right? That's Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, yes. Well, Donna, thanks for listening from Pittsburgh. Go ahead. I have a five-month-old Airedale, and I've heard different... Uh, theories on when I should get her spayed. The breeder said a year, but my vet recommended uh, six months. I was wondering uh, what Dr. Stephen thought. That's a great question, and I, and I get asked that question quite often. Um, there, my general recommendation is uh, at around six months prior to their first heat, there's a lot of discussion of whether or not we should be allowing them to get a little bit older um, in terms of musculoskeletal health and, and uh, trying to allow them to mature a little bit more. Um, and, and I think the jury is a little bit out on that yet. Um, so I, I still like to, uh, to spay them prior to the first heat. And um, in doing so, you can really reduce their risks of mammary chain tumors uh, is my, one of my primary concerns for dogs down the road. Um, and I don't think there has been enough evidence yet that dogs that are spayed at six months prior to first heat um, have bigger orthopedic issues. But that's a great question, Donna. Thank you for calling in. Does that answer your okay. question, Donna? Yes, it did. Thank you very much, Steve. And I wish you were in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Donna. Thanks, Thanks for listening to the program. Let's get a short break. Dr. Smith is here with us for the hour from Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital. And you can call with your questions for him. We're going to get this short break in. And when we come back, more of your questions. And we're going to get an inside look at the Book Buddies program at Lollipop Farm, where local kids help socialize shelter cats while practicing their reading skills. It's all next on Unleashed. Support for your public radio station comes from our members and from the financial advisors of the Sartini Group at Morgan Stanley, 585-987-6053. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC. 
From Natural Pet Foods Company, helping people make diet choices for their pets, offering frozen and grain-free foods, and foods for pets with special needs. 766 Clinton Avenue in the South Wedge. NaturalPetFoodsCompany.com And All Cats Care Center, a full-service feline veterinary hospital offering medical and surgical care and boarding. All Cats Care Center, where cats come first. More online at AllCatsCareCenter.com Welcome back to Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. One of our listeners wants to know about a raw diet. She says, is it a good idea to try it after dogs have done well on dry food? In my opinion, I do not like raw diets. It's, that's something that I see some folks come in and are very passionate about and feel um, their dogs do great uh, on raw diets. And I'm not going to debate that some dogs, you know, don't do well. I mean, there's some dogs that can definitely do great and and not have problems. The issue I have with raw diets is it sets up the potential for certain problems with especially certain bacteria that can be in raw food that if you do get into a problem, these dogs can become extremely ill, um, even life-threatening. I, I'm, uh, we had a breeder a few years back that lost an entire litter mm. of pups um, from, the, from the mom nursing. And so, it, you know, generally I, I see people that are big fans of raw diets, um, again, have never had an issue. Once they have an issue, they, they tend to go back to a, a good cooked food diet. And you talk about that that losing an entire litter. The mom was nursing, and the mom had been eating a raw diet. And That's had correct. To, okay. Yep. Okay. Um, and for people who are con, you know kind of looking at the pros and cons, are there any pros to a, a, a raw diet? Well, there's certainly, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion about, you know, is the just the process of cooking reducing uh, some of the nutritional value uh, of the food and. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that's not true. I, again, I think some dogs that seem to do awesome with skin, and, and um, particularly I brought up food allergies and such in the uh, earlier, um, I, I definitely think there can be some benefits. The problem is, is the risk, in my opinion, mm-hmm. far outweigh that uh, benefit because I do think you can find good processed or, or cooked food, I should say. Is it harder to go from dry food to raw food as opposed to raw food, I, I guess, at an earlier age for, for a dog? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think anytime you, you switch foods, um, you, you can run into problems with uh, indigestion and such and should be a, a pretty slow transition no matter which direction you're going. Um, if you're introducing raw f- uh, diets at an earlier age, do they do better? I, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think potentially they could probably do okay. But I, the, the younger the puppy, the bigger concerns I have sure. for how they're going to handle it. All right, Dr. Steve Smith from Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital in studio. And if you've got more of your calls, we will, uh, more of your questions, we'll take those going throughout the hour here. It's 844-295-TALK, 844-295-8255. You may have heard of therapy dogs, which provide emotional comfort to people. But what about people providing emotional comfort to animals? Lollipop Farm has launched a new program to help soothe and socialize shelter cats waiting to be adopted. And there's an added benefit. It also It's also a literacy program for kids. Unleash producer Megan Mack visited the shelter for a first-hand look at how all of it works. When you're learning how to greet a cat, you want to actually put your hand out so they can pet you first. 
Lollipop Farm is buzzing with activity every day of the week. But on Book Buddies Day, there's an extra element of excitement. Kids from across Monroe County gather at the Day Lily Cat Adoption Center to learn how to greet their new furry friends. The Book Buddies program pairs school-aged children with adoptable cats. It's a chance for kids to practice their reading skills and help socialize cats waiting to be adopted. Hello. Zachary Michael is a second grader at Cobbles Elementary School in Penfield. He's an animal lover. We have two cats and one turtle. Uh, Peanuts, which is also known as Samantha, Momo, or Momo Kitty, and Snappy. And he's no stranger to Lollipop Farm. He's a camper there, and this is his second time participating in the Book Buddies program. I think that I get to be a little kitty cat because, like, they're so cute and cuddly. Last time I did Book Buddies was actually Simon. But this time, he's reading to a different cat. This is Miss Check Me Out, actually. <laughs> That's her name? Oh, yeah. And by the way, the me out in Miss Check Me Out is spelled M-E-O-W-T. It sounds like, please check me out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nicholas Leprezzi is an animal care attendant at Lollipop Farm. He helps match the kids and cats. Miss Check Me Out came to Lollipop Farm on February 28th. She's 11 years old. She came to us because unfortunately her owner had to go into a nursing home. Zach found a space to sit in the special cat playroom, called over his feline friend, and pulled out his book. I picked the book Tornadoes. He says he's learning about them in school. Miss Check Me Out seemed receptive. Killer <laughs> tornadoes. The true stories of deadly twisters. About 12.55 p.m. on March 18, 1925, a twister touched down near Ellington, Missouri. 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 The mission of the Book Buddies program is twofold. Lollipop Farm staff members hope to help kids improve their literacy skills by creating a safe, non-judgmental space where they can read. Zach says it works for him. Even three separate funnels. It actually gets me more comfortable reading because, like, I'm not a big fan of reading myself, but, like, when I'm, like, reading with, like, a cute little fairy guy, it kind of gets me a little more happier reading. His mom, Renee, agrees. She's a former teacher and an animal lover like Zach. He actually loves the program. I think he's more willing to read. When we came at Christmas time, he picked uh, Polar Express, which is a movie we watch. And we had the book, and I usually read it to him, but he actually read the whole book through himself. And twice? Twice, yep. Which is something he doesn't normally do, but he found that Simon really did like to be read to the other cat. So he was very willing and happy to read it and play with the cat. And I don't think he was thinking about necessarily that he was reading as he was petting. It's nice to see him embracing it. Kim Ferris Church is the humane education manager at the shelter. She says she was inspired to bring the program to Lollipop Farm after seeing the success of similar programs at humane societies across the country. She says she can relate to the kids who participate. I sort of reflect on myself as a child where I enjoyed reading sometimes, but reading out loud was something that I struggled with. When children are in a setting where they're not around a bunch of peers, they're in a room where there's an animal that they feel comfortable around, they're more likely to read. And if they stutter or if they stumble on a word and the parent or the adult that's with them is able to sort of help guide them along, that confidence just builds. The excitement that they have when they're reading with a cat is thrilling. So seeing Zachary in there reading and 
just makes my heart so happy. <laughs> the cats benefit from the program, too. Studies show that cats find the rhythmic sounds of reading comforting and soothing. And that's especially important when cats are transitioning from their old homes to the shelter and then preparing to be adopted into new families. With the transition of coming from whatever situation they were in before and being in a new setting where there's new smells and new people and people walking in and out and visiting, it's stressful. Oftentimes you'll notice in uh, different areas in the shelter we'll play We'll actually play WXXI. We play classical music for the animals. There's studies that show that that's very soothing and rewarding and calming for them. But there's also some research out there that's saying that reading to cats and just socializing and petting them and being calm helps prepare them for their home. So yeah, it's definitely helping both the child and the cat. Let's check that. Let's check that. Zach, what do you think she's thinking when you read to her? I wouldn't really know because I'm not a cat. <laughs> the staff at Lollipop Farm say the program has been a huge success. A wait list of more than 30 kids was created after the pilot launched in December. Associate Director of Communications Ashley Zay says she hopes the program will continue to grow. It's actually been such a popular program that we have just recently yes. had to add days to it um, just because it was filling up so quickly. After about half an hour, it's time to close the books and head home. Say bye to Zach. Goodbye. She's just a cute little girl. And the staff at Lollipop Farm wants to thank the readers. So this is just a thank you for coming to help the homeless cats that are here. So I put a, a goodie bag together for you. Thanks. There's some cool prizes in there. Because what you're doing is really helping the cats in the shelter. So we just want to make sure we say thank you. You wouldn't have to do this, you know. Well, I know, but you, you didn't have to do this either. Zach says he'll be back. They just make me comfortable, like, like, like me more than sometimes my parents do. Because I just love being with animals, and they kind of make me happy. That's producer Megan Mack bringing us that story. And, you know, Dr. Smith, I don't know that a cat knows it's being read to, but what I do know is that it is amazing to see the impact of an animal on kids really of all ages, of all backgrounds. In this case, makes them want to read more. Sometimes it makes them feel a little more comfortable. I, just the interaction with animals, you've probably seen it throughout your career. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's amazing. The human-animal bond is, is something that uh, is incredible to see at, at, at all levels. Uh, just as you say, I've seen um, many uh, situations where um, children with special needs um, have, you know, a lot of difficulty with certain uh, areas of their their life, and all of a sudden you bring in an animal, and it, it's it's just an amazing impact. Um, and I've seen it w really help uh, veterans with post-traumatic uh, stress, and yeah, it, it's it's really incredible what the human-animal bond can can do for people. Let me get back to the phones for our listeners who have questions for Dr. Steve Smith from Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital. This is Mary Jo in Rochester. Go ahead, Mary Jo. Hi, um, I just have a question. We, about our dog, we have two dogs, and one is a lab that we adopted a year ago, and she's 14 years old, sweetheart, but lately she has developed this random barking, and she isn't, doesn't seem to be in any pain. She's eating fine. She's pretty mobile, um, and it's, it's really getting annoying because it's happening really early in the morning, um, and I just wondered if it could be dementia or um, what Dr. Smith thinks about this. Thanks, Mary Jo. Go, uh, why don't you stay on the line, Mary Jo, and Dr. Smith, go ahead. 
Yeah, that's a great question, Mary Jo. Thanks for calling in. There's definitely a lot of uh, dogs as they head into their senior years that can start to get into some problems with uh, some senior cognitive dysfunction issues. And that that can really show up in a variety of ways. And vocalization is certainly one of them. Sometimes you will see them becoming a bit more confused um, and not doing things that they normally uh, would do or get get engaged with you as, as often as they would. Um, there are a lot of other things, though, that sometimes these subtle clues can indicate. And so uh, I'm not sure if you've had him into your veterinarian uh, recently, but would be a good idea um, to go in and, and have a, a good physical exam, as well as run some basic uh, lab work and diagnostics to make sure that there aren't some changes because it, you know, we get our labs into the 14-year range and, and there's definitely plenty of things that can start to change. Uh, you mentioned pain and that's a, a great call in terms of uh, you know, how an animal tells us can be fairly subtle and, and sometimes it, it's the subtleties that we have to pay attention to. So there are uh, sometimes too that we will look at things like arthritis and, and problems like that, that there are a lot of good uh, pain medications and, and whatnot to help with. But general anxiety too can, can start to ramp up as, as they get a little bit older and, and there are some really good things like pheromone therapy and such that can really help with anxiety as pets get older, but that's a great question. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks, Mary Jo. Thanks for the phone call. Let me get down to Shortsville. This is Susan in Shortsville. Next up. Go ahead, Susan. Hi. Um, I uh, wanted to comment about the kids and the, the reading. Um, not, this wasn't the whole purpose of the call, but I leave the radio on sometimes if I'm making, if I'm going to be working a long shift. Um, on the theory that it at least helps the kitties feel like they're not alone. Yeah, um, sure. The, the main question is, um, does the doctor think that um, cats, maybe specifically, um, mourn the, the loss of a companion cat? Um, I have a situation where I have a, a very old cat, and he is getting comfort care. I'm hoping he will pass it home so that the younger cat can smell him and, and just have him associated with just passing. Um as opposed to having to do the trip to the vet. <laughs> sure. Um, and what's your opinion on that? Susan, thanks for the phone call. That That is such a, I think, a common, probably a very common question, especially if you have two dogs or two cats at different ages. Do they mourn when when a companion passes away? It is a great question, and I've heard plenty of different answers to that question through my career and, and uh, based on you know th- my experience and what I see talking with my clients and, and seeing even my own pets and, and how they handle that. Um, I believe that animals, want, anytime there's an, a change in, in the household, whether it's a new pet or the loss of a pet, it changes dramatically. Uh, the how that pet interacts with the kind of the entire family and, and the household and, as well as the other the other pets you know the pecking order changes um, in, in multi animal households and and such and so it, it really changes the dynamic uh, tremendously and can add a lot of anxiety and stress to that remaining uh, pet particularly if they were uh, you know once very used to having other pets as companions and now they're they're by themselves. 
And so, you know, whether they they truly mourn or not is is an excellent question. I I personally think that they do. I think that they miss uh, miss their companionship. Um, I've had situations where my dogs that you know grew up with uh, relatives in close proximity, relatives' dogs, and I move away, and I come back, and kind of the jubilation that you see in that reunion, even after years um, or months to years time, is incredible. They they it's like they not a day went past like like us seeing an old friend and so I do think they have very very good memories and I do think once they once they lose that companionship or friendship um, I, I personally believe they mourn so maybe a little extra attention I, you know anything that you may do for for anybody who's lost somebody absolutely yeah things that you can do to enrich their lives is, is a great call um, so you know certain toys or um, just just activities for those pets to do is a great call absolutely Susan also referenced uh, the Book Buddies program, and I want to mention the Book Buddies program continues through the end of the school year at Lollipop Farm, so there's still a time to sign up. And the staff says the program is geared toward children ages 6 through 12. If you want to learn more, visit lollipop.org, or you can call them at 585-223-1330, 585-223-1330. Let's get a short break, and when we come back, you're going to learn about which signs and symptoms are clues that your pets need to be taken to the emergency clinic. It's important information. And Beth Adams uh, joining us with that story that you won't want to miss next on Unleashed. Support for your public radio station comes from our members and from Natural Pet Foods Company, helping people make diet choices for their pets, offering frozen and grain-free foods and foods for pets with special needs. 766 Clinton Avenue in the South Wedge, naturalpetfoodscompany.com. From All Cats Care Center, a full-service feline veterinary hospital offering medical and surgical care and boarding. All Cats Care Center, where cats come first. More online at allcatscarecenter.com. And the financial advisors of the Sartini Group at Morgan Stanley, 585-987-6053. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC. Welcome back to Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. Always the the noon hour of the third Friday of the month. Your chance to interact with veterinarians in our local community about the health of your pets, as well as hearing stories about our animals from different perspectives and on different subjects. We've got Dr. Steve Smith from Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital, who is here for the hour answering your questions. And you still get a little time if you have a question about an animal, 844-295-TALK. 844-295-8255 or 263-WXXI, 263-9994. Now, do you know the subtle and not-so-subtle signs and symptoms that should tell you when your pet needs to see the vet? WXXI's Beth Adams spoke to Dr. Meg Brooker, veterinarian with the Canfield Dog and Cat Hospital in Pittsford, about when you should call the vet and what minor illnesses or injuries can wait to be treated. So let me start with a real basic question and one that actually people will sometimes call me and ask me about because they know I'm a real animal person, <laughs> but I'm not necessarily qualified to answer this. Thank goodness you are. When do you definitely have to take your pet to the emergency clinic to see, be seen by a vet? What are the conditions or uh, symptoms that, that come up that you say to yourself, all right, this needs the immediate attention of a vet? That's a great question, and one we try and teach our clients uh, all the time about 
I think the obvious ones is your animal's hit by a car, um, your dog is bleeding, your your cat has a, a laceration, things like that. But you'd be surprised how many people aren't sure, and then they maybe want to wait it out. But we really say the big things are, you know, if your dog is hit by a car or your cat, and even if it looks okay, please take it to the emergency because they can assess and things can go bad quickly. And animals can hide pain, correct? Yes, especially they are, cats. Especially cats. They're notorious at hiding pain. They don't want us to see them in pain. And people think if an animal's in pain, it's going to cry, and, and they actually don't cry out. If they are, they're in extreme pain. Um, the other big one that is a, is a definite that you have to go to emergency is a dog disease called bloat. Um, otherwise known as gastric dilatation volvulus. The stomach fills up with air or gas or actually gas and food, and then it twists. Oh, and is that pretty evident, <clears throat> visibly evident? Or is it, it can be. If by the time you're seeing it evident, you better be on your way to emergency. And we have a wonderful emergency clinic here in town. They're 24-hour. They're staffed by many uh, good doctors, technicians, and, and staff. So bloat is something that occurs. I just The problem is, is the dog might just be lethargic and sitting in the corner. Or if they're vomiting and nothing is coming up, you have to just ding, ding, ding. That light bulb has to go off. What causes that? Well, there's genetic predispositions, Beth. Um, the most common thing would be a deep-chested dog. So we think of Great Danes, Basset Hounds, Irish Setters, dogs with that deep chest. Um, sometimes if you exercise them after they eat or exercise them before they eat, there can be some other predisposing factors, but it can also just happen. The thing is, and I encourage everyone, call emergency. Help. Let, they will help triage your pet and your situation. And don't hesitate to call them. They're a great resource. And there is an emergency clinic here, 24-7. Absolutely. Animal Emergency Services on White Spruce Boulevard. Again, they're staffed by wonderful doctors and technicians. And again, to call and even just be triaged if your veterinarian isn't open. So if seen soon enough, this bloat can be treated it successfully? Can be. Yeah, it can okay. be. But if it's seen too late, it's not good. All right. Other problem. conditions or symptoms in cats and dogs you don't want to wait on? Respiratory issues are a big one. Um, I think a lot of owners uh, don't realize what's normal for a cat and a dog. Um, I think all of us general practitioners have seen our fair share of dogs who are and cats who are having trouble breathing. They bring them in for an office call to us, and you're, oh, my gosh, and you want to get them on oxygen right away. And I think it's a great idea if the owner can get a sense of what's normal respiratory rate for their animal. And that so when they are having trouble and the chest is going in and out a little bit with more effort, that they say, huh, something might be wrong. Maybe I better take him into the emergency clinic. And you bring up a good point there about being observant about yes. your animals. Because I, I can tell a personal story. My cat, Oscar, who is deceased now, but he was an older cat and... Uh, I would, you know, sit with him every day and, you know, we would have our special time and I'd sit down and and make sure that he got one-on-one -on -one attention from me. And I started to notice, and it was a very subtle thing um, that I almost missed, but I noticed that his respiratory rate seemed to be faster. And I noticed just because of the rising and falling of it of his chest. And uh, I said to my husband, do you see anything? And he said, I don't know. He, he, he wasn't as in tune with the animal as I was. Well, it turns out I did call my vet about it because I started to notice some other things. And that was the beginnings of uh, renal cancer. Wow. And uh, I wish that astute. wasn't true. I wish I yeah. didn't have to tell this story. But it, it yeah. really, 
made me think about watching their daily behavior and knowing what's normal for them Absolutely. and what's not normal for them. Right. Another thing to watch for owners that should get used to would be looking at their gums and knowing what's normal color for their cat and dog or any other pet and what's abnormal. Now, some dogs have black gums, so it's a little difficult, but you can look at the tongue. Um, there's usually some tissue in the mouth that'll be pink and you just get a sense of what's normal. We uh, recently had a dog that was anemic and the owner looked at the gums and knew right away. The dog was quiet, looked at the gums and just took them right to emergency. It was the best thing ever, but getting to know what's normal then you can know when it's abnormal. And what kinds of illnesses and conditions is it okay to say, all right, I'm going to take care of this at home until I get the animal in to see the vet? Probably, you know, the biggest thing would be vomiting diarrhea. <clears throat> if a dog is having bloody diarrhea or a cat, then obviously you go to emergency if the animal is in distress. But if they vomit once or twice, you might be able to wait till the next day. It's very difficult to assess. Um, you might have to say if the animal's really lethargic, maybe you better err on the side of caution and go on. But there's lots of dogs and cats who are feeling fine. Otherwise, they just have an upset stomach and they can't keep food down. So <clears throat> you might say, you, you have to use common sense, don't feed a vomiting animal. It's, it, we have a, a nature to want to feed our pets because that's what we give back to them. That's one of the things. In addition to love and a good home, but we feed them and we, they vomited up so they didn't take it down. And it's natural for us to want to feed them. Don't feed a vomiting pet. Just wait and see. And if they don't vomit anymore, you can probably maybe wait till the next day. Um, but if they continue to vomit without eating, then you need to go to emergency. Okay. And that is a tricky one. My cat does this, well, I won't say daily, but <laughs> more than I would care to mention. Yes. <laughs> she, has, she has accidents in the house like this. Well, and cats are unique in that some vomiting in cats is acceptable. Yeah. They think it's normal, whereas in a dog, you might go, well, that's a little strange. But cats can either eat fast and with the dry food, and then they'll bring it up maybe within the next half hour, or the hairball thing. And they'll just they groom themselves, they ingest a lot of hair, and a little hairball accumulates in the stomach, and at some point they bring it up. So there is a certain amount of vomiting in a cat that is absolutely normal. Again, difficult to assess if they're feeling fine otherwise, and they kept the next meal down, maybe you know, hours later, then you're fine. Um, but if they're not feeling well, that's the clue to go into emergency. Okay. What about things like superficial wounds? Let's say you have two cats, they get into a little bit of a scuffle, you know, everyone seems to be okay, but there's a little bit of blood right. drawn. It's something like that, anything you need to bother your vet about? Well, that's probably going to be a timing thing. If it happens on Saturday at 5 o'clock at night, your vet is probably not open, but um, but to wait until Monday is probably too long, so with, especially with a cat fight, and that's a good example because they can give themselves nasty infections. Even if it doesn't need sutures, they probably need to go on an antibiotic, so I would bring those in. Now, if it's Sunday night at 11, you can probably wait till the next day, again, if there's no bleeding and they're feeling okay otherwise. So. All right, so a first aid for pet recap here. If your cat or dog is lethargic, having respiratory difficulty, not eating, call the emergency vet or your vet if they're open. Correct, yeah. The emergency vet is a great source for questions. They'll help you triage. And of course, nobody can practice medicine over the phone, but they will definitely help you triage. And, and your vet may have a service where you can they can talk to them at some point. Dr. Meg Brooker, thank you so much. Absolutely. 
And our thanks to colleague Beth Adams for bringing us that piece. As a reminder, there is a 24-hour emergency veterinary service in Monroe County located at 825 White Spruce Boulevard near Monroe Community College. And you can also check with your veterinarian about after hours and emergency services. Got a few more minutes with Dr. Steve Smith from Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital. And want to get back to your questions for Dr. Smith. I'm going to get, let's go to, let's, Laura and Victor is next up. Go ahead, Laura. Hi. Um, this is kind of a segue from the cat vomiting um, issue that was just mentioned. And I just wondered how, how often can we give um, the hairball medicine to our cat? I mean, she seems to um, throw up a lot from hairballs, and she does well with the hairball medicine. But I, I didn't know if that could be a kind of regular part of her um, regime or if we have to limit how much we give that to her. Oh, good question. I, I uh, generally, it's it's quite safe to use. It's basically flavored Vaseline, is what it is, and so it helps mm-hmm. things kind of move uh, move through the GI tract a little bit smoother and faster for. Her. Um, the thing that I would suggest in that uh, scenario is uh, potentially grooming a little bit more frequently. Um, you know, combing her out so she's not uh, ingesting as much hair. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that sometimes cats will vomit a lot um, beyond hairballs is uh, the specific types of diets. Um, sometimes it's just even the consistency. I, I know some cats will vomit more frequently on dry food or canned food. Um, and so it, you can certainly do a little trial and error with uh, what type of food and how much food you're giving at a time and, and such. So uh, you can experiment around a little bit more. But with hairball specifically, you certainly can use uh, hairball prep. And some foods actually have hairball. Uh, they, you know, it talks about hairball uh, prevention through the food, so you could always try that as well. Uh-huh. So we could, could we give it to her, like, say, every other day just as a matter of course? Yeah, that, that wouldn't be a problem. Uh-huh. Okay, great. Thank you. Good yeah. luck to you, Laura. Thanks for the phone call. I had a phone call from a listener named Brittany in Geneseo who couldn't stay on the line but wanted to send in this question for Dr. Smith. Uh, has a dog that's two and a half years old and wants to know, what are preventative measures to protect the dog's joints, if any? Great question. So we see so much arthritis and problems with joints as, as dogs get older. And so one of the the number one thing that you can do is keep them in good shape and body condition. So we look at body condition scoring. Every time they come in for a wellness exam, we talk about what their body condition score is. So I'm not real concerned with how much a pet weighs. I'm more concerned about what their body condition score is. And that's basically how much uh, extra fat they're they're carrying, and that puts a lot more stress on their joints. Is that like a BMI for pets? Yeah, essentially right. Yeah, Purina came out with a body condition scoring system, one out of nine. Uh, nine is obese, one's emaciated, so you obviously want them somewhere in between, and, and we're aiming for a four to five range. Uh, they actually did a very large study that showed uh, if you can keep them in that ideal four to five range, dogs actually live on average 1.8 years longer, meaning almost two years longer. And I think a lot of that has to do, again, coming back to joint health. So I think her, you know, your number one thing is keeping them in really good condition and talk with your veterinarian about what they feel uh, the body condition score is. And, and uh, from there, there are a lot of joint supplements, even uh, fish oil, omega fatty acids have been shown to have some help with anti-inflammatory action, uh, even at the joint level. 
So those are totally fine to do. Uh, I definitely think activity, it's just like people. You know, if, if we're moving and exercising, that's a really good thing for, for joint health. Um, but as they get older, if we do feel like they're starting to stiffen up and start to have some joint pain, it's important to talk with your veterinarian about what they feel that the specific problem is. And there certainly can be certain injuries like ACL injuries that are very, very common. And that's a nice little segue, by the way. He mentioned fish oil and supplements. That's our, our subject next hour on Second Opinion Live. We'll be talking about the supplements that we take, what works, what doesn't. Um, and we'll be answering your questions about what's in your medicine cabinet and what maybe what you thought about taking, et cetera. So, but before we get there, one more quick follow-up there. I think about, I know a chiropractor who's not a big fan of of runners who run on treadmills or on hard pavement because it bangs on the joints, bangs on your back. And then you see a lot of people either running or walking dogs on pavement. Is it a better idea to walk a dog on a grass surface more often if you can? I think that if you can, that's a good call. I mean, I th- certainly on the pavement, uh, you can help to to file down their nails and those kind of things. But there's other ways of doing that. Certainly obvious uh, normal nail trimmings and such. Um, so yeah, I think off the pavement's always good. I'm a big fan of being in the woods and, and on the pathway. So definitely, especially young dogs, I generally recommend that people uh, with dogs under two years of age don't start jogging with them long distances because of the, the joint issues. They're, the joints are not uh, matured yet at that point. So to, to try and prevent injury. And down to our last minute here, Ken on Twitter writes to the program and says, uh, referencing Lyme disease earlier in the hour, he says, our dog had Lyme disease from a tick. We treated her with antibiotics, and now we use a prevention pill for ticks every six months. Is that a good idea? I think uh, as as long as you're a veterinarian and you feel that's the best uh, approach, there is no right or wrong when it comes to flea and tick with specific products, but I think it's what works best for you. And again, consulting with your veterinarian, what they feel is a good product. Uh, One of the things that I I often sometimes see with that type of of situation is, you know, are you on time? Uh, Because there are some products that work for three months, uh, one month, and, and it varies a bit. So are you on time, you know, coming back to retreatment at that point, or is it easier for some folks to treat once a month at the beginning of the month or when they're paying the bills or something like that? So whatever works best for you and, and making sure that it's an effective product for pets uh, for against flea and tick is, is going to be the best uh, case scenario. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephen Smith from Canandaigua Veterinary Hospital for being here today. Busy time of year for you guys. Thanks for making the time for the program. It's been great having you here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And listeners, you can let us know what you think about Unleashed by tweeting us at the hashtag Unleashed, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Unleashed Pet Show. If you have a story about your pet or an animal that you know that you think would be a compelling story, maybe one about service, heroics, or second chances, please email your idea to unleashed at wxxi.org. You can hear Unleashed at noon the third Friday of every month. Coming up next hour, Second Opinion Live, taking an in-depth look at the pharmaceuticals and supplements we put in our bodies and ask, do they really make us healthier? That's next after this, shortly.